and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rookrout. And today we have an Oscar Rewind focusing on the career of Frank Capra. We'll be talking all about his early life, his rise to fame in Hollywood, and specifically about his three best director wins. It happened one night, Mr. Deeds goes to town, and you can't take it with you. Frank Capra was another director to me that I didn't know much about, and I knew that he has this huge name and was widely popular as a director back in the 30s. And obviously, I was aware of It's a Wonderful Life initially, but I think these three movies, being his best director wins, were a good introduction to him. And then reading about his wild history from Italy to the United States and his career in Hollywood, I think it's fascinating who he became and really why he succeeded so well in the time that Mm -hmm. he did. It is. And, you know, on our William Wyler episode, I joked that if you went up to a random person on the street and asked them to name a director from this period, they would not say William Wyler. However, I do think they would say Frank Capra. I think that he is Mm -hmm. very popular for people who follow this kind of stuff or for people who don't. And I think that is mainly because of It's a Wonderful Life and the popularity that that movie has, especially as a holiday classic. But I think he is one of the most popular directors of the period and made some essential films about the American dream, which obviously connected with viewers at that time, which we will definitely get into more. But also someone who had a lot of success with the Academy. I'm excited to discuss whether or not you think these movies deserved all the praise that they got from the Academy. Like, obviously, they won him awards, but do you know Mm -hmm. individually how they did with the Academy and if they were overwhelming winners? So It Happened One Night is the first winner of the Big Five, so that is a huge success with the Academy. Otherwise, though, like here and there, they'll win just one Oscar, two Oscars, But nothing like what we got with Weiler and Ben-Hur, for example. We Mm -hmm. never got like the big sweeping number of nominations here in that way. But I think his success in what we would call the major categories, like picture and director, and seeing nominations there, I think that's how we see his success with the Academy. I think more important was his success at the box office. He was the most popular director of the 30s. Which is something I think we got into a little bit with Weiler, too. Even though his movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, was number one and a huge box office success, I think Mm -hmm. talking about this in terms of box office and popularity and do they always coincide, I think is an interesting conversation to have, especially with another huge name like Frank Capra. So you touched on this a bit of Frank Capra being somewhat new for you. But what was your relationship to him before watching these movies? And how was this group of watches for you overall? Probably the first time I saw one of his movies. And at the time, I never associated it with Frank Capra. And I don't think any time I'd watched any of his movies I had either. But Mm -hmm. it was in high school when we watched Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in history class. And his rousing speech is this filibuster to teach us what that meant, really. I guess it was fine. I was never into politics, especially growing up. But I think that was also my introduction to Jimmy Stewart, too. And -hmm. from there, having watched It Happened One Night this week, I realized I had seen this a long, long time ago. But again, I never really thought of, oh, this is a Capra movie. And then obviously It's a Wonderful Life at some point had come into my Christmas rotation of movies. I mean, maybe that makes me a bad Hollywood Academy historian of sorts that I had seen multiple of his movies and never really Mm -hmm. associated them with his name. But I can see the correlation now. And having seen more of them, I think I'll go back and watch maybe a few more that brought him his wide success. But I definitely think his motives and what he was achieving would play so differently today if he had made them. So I'll throw it back at you. What was your relationship to Frank Capra growing up, watching his movies, and then this group of watches? I'll start by saying Frank Capra is not my favorite director. 
I do have a heart, I promise. But some of these things, they don't work as well for me as some of the other directors from the period. But he will always have a special place in my heart because It's a Wonderful Life was the first black and white movie I ever saw Mm -hmm. as a kid. So that really, I think, opened my eyes to old Hollywood and really getting swept up in that world. And I've watched it every Christmas Eve since I was a little kid, like Mm -hmm. six or seven years old from what I can remember. And Jimmy Stewart was actually my gateway into Hitchcock, which is kind of crazy to think about. It wasn't just Hitchcock as a director Mm -hmm. it was that my dad loved jimmy stewart so we watched all of those and that's how i knew hitchcock and i remember getting mr smith goes to washington from the library when i was in like seventh (laughs) grade (laughs) just because jimmy stewart was in it and that it was frank capra so i expected it to i think i expected to love it as much as it's a wonderful life at the time but I, of course, didn't. I was way too young for those <laughs> themes, even though I loved social studies. So I definitely had a strong relationship to Frank Capra just because of when I was exposed to his movies. I didn't see it happen one night until college, but I love that movie. I think it's pretty brilliant, actually. It invented everything that you see in a romantic comedy today, which I love. And I think you owe that to Frank Capra. Um, we owe that to Robert Riskin, the screenwriter, of course, too. But yeah, I do like a lot of his movies. I find some of the themes harder for me to connect with. We can get to those, I think, when we talk about the comparisons between all of these movies. But I understand, I would say, why viewers at the time and viewers today still feel so connected to these films. They are very accessible. They pull at your emotional heartstrings and they have this everyman character that I feel like viewers really love to see that underdog achieve great things. So it makes sense. A little formulaic, but I get why Mm -hmm. it happens. I think that kind of gets into how I felt about this group of movies too, which is that when I was watching some of them, I honestly could only think of like Aaron Sorkin, which is, sorry, dark (laughs) thought, but... I feel like Aaron Sorkin today is trying to be Frank Capra. Not as successful, of course, but I think that's what he's definitely trying to do and why a lot of viewers like his movies and TV shows. Those sweeping speeches and like the close-ups of the characters as they're having these emotional moments. Sorkin wants to be Capra, I think. I don't know if he's ever said that, but that's how it seems to me. That's so interesting. I'll have to look that up um, if he's ever quoted him before. I mean, Sorkin obviously writes his material. Capra didn't do that. He had screenwriters working on it. But just, I think, the way he told stories and the themes he goes into, Mm. I can see it. And there's always this really glossy cut whenever there's this romantic climax happening. And I guess I can see that a lot in what Sorkin writes. Mm. Maybe not necessarily in the image, but I definitely feel that. Well, I'm sorry to all of the Capra fans that I brought up this comparison, but it really just I couldn't get it out of my head when I was watching these again. So getting into a little background on Capra now, we're doing this retrospective of sorts because September 3rd marks 30 years since he passed away in 1991. So Frank was born in 1897 in Sicily before emigrating to the United States aboard the Germania steamship where he turned six en route. And then from there, they traveled to California, where his older brother was living. And so they lived with him for a while. He was always this believer of the American dream. And I think that's exactly what he personified through all of his movies. Because as he was young, he was going through school and his family didn't want him to finish school. They wanted him to work, to make money. And he pursued schooling through high school, through college, against his family's wishes. And then in 1917, he enlisted in the army during World War I. And then the following year was discharged because he had Spanish flu. And then he first entered the film industry as an extra in John Ford movies. Who we will have to talk about at some point because he is our other Oscar record holder in the best director category. Amazing. And they're all intertwined, (laughs) which is kind of funny. So from here, he still didn't get much work. He struggled for a long time finding a steady job. And then in 1920, he became a naturalized citizen of the U.S. and then moved to San Francisco, where he started directing and writing shorts for smaller companies. Again, didn't hold this very long. 
Later in the 20s, in October of 1928, Columbia Pictures hired him as a director. Which is also a huge deal because at the time, Columbia was like a money pit. Harry Cohn, who was head of Columbia Pictures, they were just bleeding money. And Capra really was the one who turned it around for them as a company, bringing them up to the likes of RKO, MGM, those big studios like that. So they really owe that all to Capra. And like in addition to just bringing Columbia out of debt, he directed nine projects in the first 12 months at Columbia. Yeah, when they hired him, he was making $1,000 a picture. And within that first year, he was bumped up multiple times, got bonuses, and was making $3,000 per picture. So then in 1932, he made American Madness, which was a turn for him because this is where he really started to define his style and imbue his films with these themes of the American dream and really decided to uplift this nation that was battling the Great Depression. And then at the 1934 Academy Awards, he had a really embarrassing loss, which is when he was nominated for Lady for a Day. This is so sad because so when I first heard about this, like, oh, embarrassing director loss, I was like, what did he win? Like a bunch of precursors and then lost this. That's not how it worked back then anyway. Like precursors were not a thing. But what happened is, oh my God, (laughs) the announcer said, come up and get it, Frank. So Frank Capra walks up to the stage and the best director winner was actually Frank Lloyd for Cavalcade. (laughs) Like so cringe, embarrassing, but also like this presenter should have thought about this and not been so (laughs) rude. (laughs) And these people behind Capra were like booing him they were like down in front and Capra had this like really bad walk of shame back to his seat people were yelling sit down and he said it was the longest saddest most shattering walk in my life I wish I could have crawled under the rug like a miserable worm when I slumped in my chair I felt like one all of my friends at the table were crying oh my god he made up for it winning the big five the next year Right. And after this, he like vowed to never, ever go to the Academy Awards ever again. And then lo and behold, the following year, he not only became the Academy president, but he also won his first award for It Happened One Night, which is a great turnaround. Truly the best turnaround you can have, I think. I don't think you can (laughs) get better than that. I mean, his problems didn't stop there because as Academy president, there were so many labor issues going on between all of the guilds that were just starting to be formed. And they were boycotting the ceremony because of all of the pay cuts going on because of the Depression and part of what Louis B. Mayer had proposed in like a 50% pay cut across the board. And people were just so upset. But Frank Capra, the man that he is, overhauled the ceremony, changed the nomination process to a more democratic one, and even added the two supporting acting categories. He also this year, which we previously talked about, created the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award after the 1937 ceremony, which he also won for Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. I love that he created the supporting actor categories, especially because, you know, back then they were very much reserved for character actors. They would never go to leads. But especially considering one thing I love in his movies is how he has this very large cast of eccentric supporting characters. Even though at the time it was really to placate the acting guild. Right. And now we just get category fraud. (laughs) (laughs) so he reigned as academy president until 1940 and he continued to direct he later formed liberty films with john ford so that's where he comes up again after world war ii ended and this is where he directed it's a wonderful life and like thinking about world war ii for a second in a similar way to weiler with mrs Mm -hmm. miniver frank capra made world war ii propaganda films which you can find online. There are some great articles about them. And he actually ended up winning Best Documentary for Prelude to War. Another connection here between our directors. Mm -hmm. Very cool. (laughs) From here on out, Capra was basically on the decline. If you remember from our Weiler chat, The Best Years of Our Lives came out the same year as It's a Wonderful Life did. And obviously Weiler's film did so much better at the box office with audiences. Mm -hmm. 
It's a Wonderful Life was actually considered somewhat of a flop because audiences were looking for more realistic portrayals than Capra's realization of the American dream through especially It's a Wonderful Life at this time. So they kind of disregarded that. And he had a few other movies through the 60s and then he retired but in the end was really regarded for his work in the 30s and through the Great Depression and really how he kept America's spirits up through that time. There's even a quote from John Cassavetes who said, maybe there never was an America in the 30s. Maybe it was all Frank Capra. You can always count on Cassavetes to be to the point and profound because I totally believe that that's true. And we have a question from The Futurist. Do you think Capra's career was enhanced and blossomed due to the Great Depression and how it affected these movies? Late in his career, he even went back to the theme or milieu with A Pocket Full of Miracles. I think the short answer, yes, of course, 100%. There was an LA Times article from right after Capra's passing in 1991 where they quoted Capra. And he said, movies should be a positive expression that there's hope, love, mercy, justice, and charity. It is the filmmaker's responsibility to emphasize the positive qualities of humanity by showing the triumph of the individual over adversities. And that's exactly what he was doing through the 30s. And even before then, really, he boiled these huge social problems down, i.e. the Great Depression, as these evil characters that the people, be it the audiences or the supporting characters, the ones that he wanted you to identify with, that they could tackle or reform. And you really got emotionally connected to them and to their experiences. And I think by the end, yes, it's kind of cliche or overdone now, but by overcoming those social issues, they really uplifted the spirit of the audiences and showed in another quote that Capra said, the preservation of the liberty of the individual person against the mass. I completely agree. I think that Frank Capra and his filmmaking style are perfectly set up to thrive during a time like the Great Depression. I think going off of one of the things that you said, one thing that I think would really connect well with viewers is that not only does he take these complex social issues and tell these stories in a way that would connect with the average moviegoer but he gives them a face like he creates these characters that personify the issues and that make it easy to follow and it's what you see in like old myths and fairy tales where you have this triumphant everyman character i thought a lot about how at the beginning of the godfather the very first line of the movie is i believe in america that was made in the 70s. And that quote kind of in that movie encapsulates America being this place for violence and greed, all of this darkness. And that's what viewers mm -hmm. wanted at that time. But back in the 30s, Capra believed in the goodness of America. I think he was just very optimistic about the American dream. And if we think about the time, you know, after World War II, when It's a Wonderful Life came out, it really illuminates what audiences wanted after the war and how their their taste was changing and moving into what we get later on, right? Like with The Godfather decades later, which is they didn't want sugar-coated views of what they mm -hmm. were experiencing. And I think that while I love It's a Wonderful Life, it is so fascinating to look at it as an artifact of the time, in a sense, because during a time like the Great Depression, everyone wanted hope. They wanted people that they could look at and that would give them something to believe in through that really challenging time. And after World War II, people were just over it. They had all experienced this collective pain mm -hmm. and suffering. And they were just like, no, I don't want the sweetness anymore. And I think that totally makes sense. And obviously people have come around on It's a Wonderful Life in an incredible way. I mean, that film is definitely more well known than The Best Years of Our Lives, for example. But that's, I think his style's perfectly suited to the Great Depression. Is that how we're going to be today about pandemic movies? I think so. Now I just am like, no, like, get it away from me. I don't I don't <laughs> want that. Like, I just want to know what's happening. And I want it to be over. Right. I think there's definitely a parallel there. Maybe not specifically to how at the beginning of everything, people were thriving on like contagion and safe and all those mm -hmm. pandemic movies. And that somewhat transitioned into more optimism. So let's get into our big five winner here. 
It Happened One Night, which came out in 1934. IMGb description here, a renegade reporter and a crazy young heiress meet on a bus heading for New York and end up stuck with each other when the bus leaves them behind at one of the stops. It was written by Robert Riskin, obviously directed by Frank Capra. It stars Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert, and Walter Connolly. It was the first winner of the Big Five, so Best Picture, Director for Capra, Best Actor for Clark Gable, Best Actress for Claudette Colbert, and Best Screenplay. And it was five for five. It didn't have any extra nominations. Just did a clean sweep. So you mentioned that you had seen this before, but what did you think of it now? And... How do you feel like it fits into the rest of Frank Capra's filmography from what you've seen? Now that I know that this was basically the first best rom-com that Hollywood made, the characters felt fresh. The storyline didn't feel overdone. Like a lot of rom-coms of today that just seem like they're put out to attract audiences and box office numbers. And I think it has a really good pacing, especially in the beginning. I was really drawn to the Ellie character and she didn't seem like this scripted head over heels Hollywood woman. So I really liked the charisma between her and Peter. So played by Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable. And I think part of that is due to Capra and his direction. And in relation to these movies specifically, this was my favorite by far. To all of his movies, I think it really holds up. His first win maybe being his best even. What did you think? I love this movie. I mean, to say it's original is not even enough, really, because when you watch this movie, it still not only holds up, but you can just see traces of everything that was to come later on in this genre. The original script was called Night Bus, which also reminded me that this kind of invented the road trip movie. So you have that. Then you have the romantic comedy, which just certain little scenes from it, like him teaching her how to dunk donuts properly or the walls of Jericho scene. Mm -hmm. Like this is a movie that's all about sex without any sex at all. And this guy who's a hot, charming journalist. Have you ever seen a movie with that before? (laughs) Hundreds now. Like Matthew McConaughey and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Gregory Peck and Roman Holiday. Like you can see it throughout time that Mm -hmm. everything has taken something from this movie because what it did it did incredibly well and it's just so charming i think the leads have great chemistry so claudette colbert is not my favorite capra lady i will say but i do love her in this i love her costumes i love her confidence i love how well she plays off of gable and i think this is definitely also my favorite of the bunch that we're going to talk about today and It's kind of unlike the rest of his movies because it doesn't have this like central male character who you're fighting for, who's making some big social statement. There is a lot of social commentary in it, especially as a depression film with the Ellie character being this rich girl Mm -hmm. thinking the world's going to wait on her when it just that's not how life works. She finds out that is obviously depicted very well throughout the story. But yeah, it doesn't have this like rousing transformative speech saving a town it fits into his filmography nicely of course it's the staple of his filmography in a lot of ways but it's also very different which i appreciated so since this movie was pre-code and it actually came out four months before the Hayes code was enacted do you think that would have had an effect on it or what do you think would have been different if it had been made later on well the first thing i will say is like I'm not a big Clark Gable girl, but I did scream a little bit internally when he took his shirt off because I forgot that this was pre-code. And I was like, whoa, this is, you know, not what happens in these movies. What's going on? And then I remembered. So I think, obviously, everything with them, like, changing or, like, getting undressed, especially, like, her. And I know Claudette Colbert said she wouldn't do any nudity in the movie, but just scenes of them getting ready for bed would be totally different. But if you think about like Mrs. Miniver, for example, and how they in those scenes like show them getting ready for bed, they're mm-hmm. already like cut to like them in their pajamas in the twin beds. There's like no sexual tension. They're talking about her hat that she bought at the mall. So I think that would have been very, very different. Yes, I thought the undressing scene was kind of wild. You know, I didn't Mm -hmm. really expect him to take his shirt off. But the fact that they made this entire scene about his process for undressing. 
mm-hmm. was also just a little crazy. But I think this scene particularly is kind of when she starts to fall for him and we kind of do too as an audience. Mm-hmm. So I did like it. Yeah. I also just love the banter between them. Robert Riskin, the screenwriter here, who worked with Capra on all of these movies that we're going to talk about today, this wasn't his first movie with Capra. He actually worked on Platinum Blonde with him before, and that movie also has this journalist type very similar to Gable. But Molly Haskell, the film critic, she said that the dynamic in It Happened One Night between the characters, she described it as an aggressive and charged dynamic, which I felt like was such a perfect way to describe what's happening between these characters. Like, neither of these characters are easy to root for, I would say, especially at the beginning. She's a bit entitled. Like, she's literally kept on a yacht and wants to go back to her drip of a husband who we never even really meet. She wants the bus to wait for her. She walks to the front of the line for the showers. Like, she does all Mm -hmm. of these things that are just, like, very stereotypical rich girl behavior, which we see a lot in rom-coms. And he's kind of smarmy in a way. And I think part of that is because that's just how I see Clark Gable. It's hard to root for them, but then you come to love them as the movie goes on. And I think Mm -hmm. that's also another thing that's a staple with rom-coms. So I did also really like that. Did you see the fact that Bugs Bunny might have been based off his character? Yes. I am a full believer in this when he's eating the (laughs) carrots. I love that. Some people think also he's based on Bogart as like another classic Hollywood man. But this that scene in particular when he's eating the raw carrots... Mm -hmm rumored to be inspiration for the Bugs Bunny, which was very cool. Well, there are a few things. So Frizz Freeling, who was the creator of Bugs Bunny, he said that It Happened One Night was one of his favorite movies. There's also a point in the movie where a character calls Peter Doc, and then this imaginary character Bugs Dooley is also mentioned, and then obviously the carrots. So I think there is a pretty strong connection. Just going straight into the Oscars, do you think this deserved to win the Big Five? I think it did. Yeah. You know, now that we've discussed all three big five winners, I don't think there's any formula to why they win. But I think it was worthy. I really liked both of the actors, even Mm -hmm. though they weren't the first choices. Colbert didn't want to be in it initially because her first movie with Capra for the love of Mike flopped and their experience just was not a good one mutually. So don't ask me why it did, but I did like all of these components. I did too. I will say I am a Betty Davis in Of Human Bondage (laughs) apologist. (laughs) I'm obviously fine with it winning the big five, but that is the one where I would maybe take it away. And I do like Claudette Colbert in this movie, but I think we should briefly talk about Betty Davis and her write-in campaign. This performance was so critically acclaimed. In her autobiography, this is the best, she called herself the female Marlon Brando of my generation. So (laughs) (laughs) there you go. But she didn't get a nomination. So of course, like there was outrage over this, like we Mm -hmm. have today when our favorites are snubbed. And basically, people used this to say at the time that the Academy was dwindling in importance. This was in the 30s, like because she didn't get nominated after the nominations came out and demands for write-in votes were coming through the academy president at the time howard easterbrook he said the following statement criticisms of the nominations for the 1934 academy awards have appeared with such uniform content that they raise the question as to whether these criticisms are based on genuine opinion or propaganda with so many achievements of unquestioned merit each year however it is inevitable that certain differences of opinion should arise Despite the fact that the criticism fails to take into consideration that the nominations have been made by the unrestricted votes of each branch, the awards committee has decided upon a change in the rules to permit unrestricted selection of any voter who may write on the ballot his or her personal choice for the winners. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it resulted in a rule change, right? Like, at the time, that's crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. But it wasn't enough. Claudette won. (laughs) Another answer to the question that we've had before of if you could see the votes for any Oscar year, what would you pick? This is one I would really love to see. Like, I want to know how successful her writing campaign actually was. I don't think it was close, but that might just be me. (laughs) So how do you think today's Academy would receive It Happened One Night? It's really hard because it wouldn't be groundbreaking today, right? So 
I don't think it would be really well received. Certainly not a big five winner. I do think that this screenplay mm-hmm. would still be really celebrated because it obviously still holds up today. But I do think if something like this that was very fun and original came out, I think it could have the potential to be an awards player. What about you? Going along with that, I think, you know, we talked about comedies at the Oscars recently. I think I agree in that it wouldn't receive as many, probably not a picture and a director nomination, let alone wins. But I think I would agree that screenplay would get in, but I'm not sure of those other big four categories if they would all show up. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I think I would give it to Capra for director. I think especially out of these three, this was his most deserving. And it is a pretty memorable film and one that really holds up on rewatch. What would you give it to? I mean, obviously picture. It's one of the best, best picture winners, I think. It's really, really good. I would do director for Capra too. I think that this is, to have the vision that he did and to execute it in this way is really impressive. And I think this is his greatest accomplishment as a director. So next, we'll be discussing Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, which came out in 1936. IMDb description, a simple small town man inherits a massive fortune and is immediately hounded by those who wish to take advantage of him. It stars Gary Cooper, Gene Arthur, and George Bancroft. It won one Oscar for Best Director and was nominated for four others for Picture, Actor for Cooper, Screenplay for Riskin, and Sound Recording. How did you feel about Mr. Deeds Goes to Town? So this was my first time seeing this movie and this I would definitely call like the most Capra, but also not the best Capra for sure. I do think like the story itself is so absurd. Like this man from Vermont has this inheritance and it's like babe pig in the city. Like he just goes to New York. It's just an odd premise. And then the fact that he is thought to be insane because he wants to give away his money. I mean, you can't get more Capra than that. Right. Of like diving into capitalism and having this central character who's supposed to represent like the ideal American man. So that made me laugh a little bit. But overall, like it was, I thought, like pleasant viewing experience. I love Jean Arthur. So I was very excited to get to watch two movies with her. But Gary Cooper, this is crazy because like people like Daniel Day-Lewis and Tom Hanks and Stravinsky Pacino, like all of these people love Gary Cooper as an actor, and I don't get it. I don't know why I don't get it, but if there's something about it that like he just emotionally and they've praised him as being a natural actor, and honestly, they know better than I do about what makes a good actor a good mm-hmm. actor. But to me, he just comes across as kind of aloof, and I just want more. I want more emotion from him. And this was another case where I just didn't feel it. I don't know why I'm this way with him. I guess we all have our people that we're just like not into as actors. I think the only other Gary Cooper film I'd seen is High Noon. But I think he fits the bill here, definitely in his younger years, as this American dream idealist figure. He writes poems for postcards. He doesn't care about the money. He wants to help out these farmers. He's Mm -hmm. incredibly hot. He's so hot. (laughs) You know, I think there were two things that kept me watching this movie. That was one of them. The other only lasted about halfway, but it was imagining this movie being adapted as an Adam Sandler film, which (laughs) just astounded me. (laughs) Right, because this movie kind of reinvents him as the American hero, which we get later on in High Noon and Pride of the Yankees when he plays Lou Gehrig. He is just like this hot, strong, silent type who, yeah, like you said, writes postcards. And then the <laughs> remake with Adam Sandler. <laughs> and not to disparage Adam Sandler, but like if you look at the poster of Mr. Deeds, <laughs> he's wearing pants go. that are several sizes too big for him. <laughs> he's just kind of like smirking, wearing a hoodie. And it is just the antithesis of Gary Cooper, which is so funny. I do think, and this is one of my parallels to today, he is kind of the original Ted Lasso. He's this super lovable character who really only focuses on the finer things in life and what really matters. He's optimistic. He's altruistic. Like That is the character. So I can definitely see the Ted Lasso comparison. I did love like all of the little details Capra shows in the movie. Like, 
when they're at the courtroom at the end and he's showing like shots of all of the nervous tics that people have. I think he's really good at little details like that and showing important moments. He also lets the camera linger. And I liked that because that was how you could really feel the relationship and the feelings between the Gene Arthur character, who is this journalist. We have a journalist again here who is undercover, kind of writing these articles mm. about him. But we see their chemistry in these moments. I will say I hate their moment at the end. Was this weird to you? Ugh. How like that kiss was so when he picks dull. her up. Yeah, that Ugh. was not the way to end this movie. It was and I so weak. <laughs> And I just found the whole courtroom scene to be so unrealistic. You know, she's basically having a fit on the stand and all of these old white men are just like, go sit down, you know, we're going to hold you in contempt of court. And then all these people come up and I feel like they're reasoning for him being this unreliable man who can't be trusted with money is just so weak. Like, it's all just trying to prove this point that how could you ever give away your money? Like, no one would ever do that. When I said, like, the most Capra, it's just, yeah, it's a ridiculous premise that it's just like, of course. (laughs) It's, like, way too on the nose. Yeah, and that final kiss where he comes back and picks her up and whisks her away, it was (laughs) a little disappointing. So how would today's Academy receive this movie? I guess it could have gotten a nomination for... Capra, but I really don't think anything else would have shown up here. I mean, maybe a small chance for screenplay, but I really don't think any of the acting categories. Why was sound recording nominated? I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> Out of all the technicals, like that's the one thing I, I don't know. How do you think the Academy would receive this movie today? I, I don't think it's showing up anywhere. I think today the problem also would be that this would very much have like a this is us feel to it. And it would be a straight like dump to Netflix type of thing. So I don't think the Academy would receive it well. So if you had to give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would give it to Gene Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, it's my bias, I guess. But for me, she's the most compelling character in the story. I feel like I believe her more than anyone else in the movie. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't even nominated, so. (laughs) No, that's exactly what I would do. She's the most memorable part of the movie to me. And she's such an underrated... I'm just going to go on about her for a couple minutes. Not a couple minutes, 30 seconds. She is such an underrated, essential hero of the screwball comedy. She's so good in them. And of course, like even back then, the Academy wasn't recognizing comedic performances. And I wouldn't even say she's giving us like a strong comedic performance here, but that's kind of how she was known in Hollywood. So I wish she would have gotten more attention from the Academy because she also wasn't nominated for our next movie. And she was the most memorable part of that one, too. All right. Our last movie we have You Can't Take It With You, which came out in 1938. IMDb description here. A man from a family of rich snobs becomes engaged to a woman from a good-natured but decidedly eccentric family. It stars Jimmy Stewart, Gene Arthur, and Lionel Barrymore. You Can't Take It With You won two Oscars. It won Best Picture and Best Director. It was nominated for five others. Supporting Actress for Spring Byington, Film Editing, Cinematography, Screenplay, and Sound Recording. So this was based on a stage comedy that was written by Moss Hart and George S. Kaufman. And when Capra saw this play on stage, he said he knew he had to make it. So he went to Columbia and he convinced Cohn, who was who didn't like to spend a lot of money, he convinced him to make it for $200,000. And Riskin kept most of the script the same, but built out the Jimmy Stewart part a little bit more because Jimmy Stewart from this movie really became Capra's leading man. So in a different way from Cooper, he saw Stewart as kind of another version of this idealistic American man. What did you think of You Can't Take It With You? Um... It's safe to say it doesn't work for you. (laughs) No, it does not. How do you feel about the title of this movie? Because I can never remember what it is. Oh, I like the title. I think that the title is like a very standard phrase that perfectly fits into the Capra brand, which is like, you know, you can't take your money with you when you die. Everything that you have, you need to use it when you're alive to make the world a better place and to just live life to the fullest. Like that's very much 
what Capra believes and like what he thinks of the American dream and of optimism and everything like that. So I do like the title. I think my trouble with it was the first half had all of these little sketches written, basically, and it seemed like it was so nonsensical. I also started it in little bits, Mm. and I restarted it eventually because I just had no idea what was going on, and it made sense. There was depth to the script, which I liked, Mm -hmm. and how the characters interacted, but I was so confused about this house in the beginning and all of these wild actors and Uh what they were doing and how the grandfather was called to this meeting and convinced this accountant to quit his job on the spot and to make these magician jack-in-the-boxes instead. Like, what? The way that it opens with that, one, okay, so the problem with having seen It's a Wonderful Life so many times is that in this movie in particular, I was just pointing out constantly all the people who appear in It's a Wonderful Life Lionel Mm -hmm. Barrymore is obviously very famous. So the fact that this movie opens with Mr. Potter convincing this man named Poppins to start making his little toys. I was intrigued, I will say, because I just love weird things. It does take you a minute, I think, to orient yourself to, okay, well, this is actually not the saccharine drama that Capra usually does, but instead it's a screwball comedy. But it's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of, I think, tonally, it's challenging to adjust to what's happening in front of you. And that house is just so manic. And there are just so many things everywhere. I just wanted to clean it. Every (laughs) time I was watching anything that was happening in the house, I wanted to just organize it all. I did like some of the editing choices or what they did Mm -hmm. with some of the shots. But there's another scene where Jimmy Stewart goes on about the function of chlorophyll in plants. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Why what is the is grass going green? On? <laughs> and they were trying to extract the powerhouses from the plants and to make them. I was like, where is this going? It doesn't feel like it's written by the same person who wrote It Happened One Night. That was kind of how I felt about it. It didn't writing wise measure up to that comedy for me. Well, it feels like there are 10 people working on this separately and then it kind of came together. That's also how I felt. <laughs> And I think that's why I was so confused through part of it. But I think once everything intersected, then it started to flow really well. But I also didn't love Jimmy Stewart in this either. I like him, but I I like the idea that he's playing this kind of like straight-laced banker's son against this freewheeling woman from this eccentric family. I just like that as a setup. And I think his behavior in the movie just does make sense for a guy like that. Like he would act like this, like a little naive. I don't know. I think I found him to be at least just more engaging than Gary Cooper. I mean, not to look at. We're not talking about that. (laughs) But at least like performance wise, I was getting a little bit more. I'm not really sure I agree with that. (laughs) I do think it's interesting that you said that this is kind of the setup for It's a Wonderful Life and Jimmy Stewart's rise as Capra's it man, basically. Mm -hmm. Because while that characterization of him sets him up to be the main character, he's definitely not the lead here. I think the story is more focused on A.P. Kirby and his transformation and eventual denial of the deal, but also Martin Vanderhoff, the character played by Lionel Barrymore. To me, they were both more fascinating characters, and maybe that's the Capra of it, and really playing these two off of each other because they are pretty big opposites. I can see that. I think, though, just like, or what I'm thinking more of is like, you have Gary Cooper, who definitely represented one specific type of American male ideal. And then Jimmy Stewart is a much more, I would say, sensitive, realistic version of that. I think he's more charming in his Mm -hmm. performances. And I also think that he is more relatable. Like he's this tall, skinny guy who's from Indiana. That's more relatable to audiences, at least, Mm -hmm. in playing that everyman character that Capra loves so much. But, like, I would never put this, like, even in the top top five Jimmy Stewart performances. Like, not even close. Okay. So I agree with you there. But it just springboarded him into better projects. Mm-hmm. There was another bit that kind of irked me. It's when the Kirby family comes over to meet the Vanderhoffs. And A.P. Kirby is given this rocking chair. 
that's like too short and they do these cutaway laugh bits five times where it's like he sits down and he's uncomfortable i was like okay we get it please let's move on from the chair bit maybe i'm being a little too harsh here does it not bother you when Chaplin does stuff like that though i guess i know what i'm getting into in that sense so i expect the slapstick from him yeah i mean it's just like screwball is just such like it is such a distinctive style and like the characters are so odd that is the whole thing i mean i can even see some like mel brooks in there now too yeah it's just like they're just nutty and weird like Mm -hmm. that's kind of the thing but i can see how it would be it would feel like some bits were just overdone and like too much Speaking of the Spring Byington character, which was one of the nominations, I did actually really like her. I did too. And some of the weirdos of the house. I mean, that worked for me. Okay. That worked for me too. And while we were there, I did really like the fireworks Mm -hmm. sequence and the exterior shots of the house being basically blown to bits by Mm -hmm. (laughs) these basement fireworks. And that climax of them being sent to jail that's kind of where it turned around for me okay so it kind of won you back in the end maybe (laughs) a little bit a little bit i think though overall this was a pretty weak year for best picture at the oscars our other nominees that we had we had the adventures of robin hood alexander's ragtime band boys town the citadel four daughters grand illusion jezebel pygmalion and test pilot do you think of any of those movies when you think of the 30s? I mean, the next year's a great year. I guess another part of me was like this being a two hour and six minute movie was just too long. And the others, we were really spoiled with the length. How do you think this one fit in with the rest of the Capra movies in his filmography or that we've talked about? In style and story, it fits with everything that he's made. It definitely built on this American dream, idealistic, heroic nature that he built mm-hmm. up especially with It's a Wonderful Life. So I think the progression there is pretty stable. I think it fits in really well from the title, like I talked about earlier, to just some of the quotes in it that I actually really liked. There were a few I wrote down. One was, it just seems like in their own way, they found what everybody's looking for about the Vanderhoffs. And then he could have been a rich man, but he wasn't having any fun. I feel like those types of quotes really capture what Capra is going for of just this idea that like you don't need money to have happiness and that that necessary that isn't necessarily like Mm -hmm. the best way to live which is easy to say for someone who not to roast Capra a little bit but that's easy to say for someone who's like a really rich director but he came from nothing and he built himself up and I think that's a worthy feat I mean does Mm -hmm. that mean you get to say that in all of your movies then that money doesn't matter when you have money I don't know just a thought (laughs) to my big brother George the richest man in town is still the best we'll talk about that movie later in the year so how do you think this movie would be received by the academy today this to me again was not a strong best picture year and this was just very indicative of the time and of Capra's success and I think something like this today wouldn't have the same type of traction Of all the movies we've talked about today, this had the most nominations. Wow, it was the most nominations that year, too. To me, it's just kind of another screwball comedy. But I agree, it wouldn't show up here. It's funny, though, because the two later movies that are his best after this, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, that one had 10 nominations. It's a Wonderful Life had six nominations, but they were just up against juggernaut movies like Mm -hmm. the best years of our lives which we talked about and gone with the wind for mr smith goes to washington which we all know that wasn't happening and then if you could give this movie one oscar what would it be you know what let's give it to spring byington because she deserved as the wacky mother i really (laughs) liked when she was on screen i think lionel barrymore could have been a close second for me also fun fact just to make the connection lionel is drew's great uncle you're gonna hate me for saying this not jimmy stewart no 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 this is worse for you i think i would give it screenplay i guess the reason why i can't give it supporting actress is because i like faye bainter in jezebel and that year pygmalion won screenplay i don't think we need that we can give this one screenplay that's fine all right so we went through our three movies that we were going to talk about today it happened one night mr deeds goes to town and you can't take it with you Final verdict. 
Do you think Frank Capra deserved to win three Best Director Oscars? I think he did, but I don't think he deserved them for these three movies. You know, it was kind of a shame that his other movies came in those years, like you mentioned. Do you think Mr. Smith Goes to Washington should have split with Gone with the Wind? I do not. I don't think we're going to get into all the issues with Gone with the Wind today, but Gone with the Wind was the film. I mean, it still Mm -hmm. is. Adjusted for inflation, the biggest moneymaker at the box office ever. Yeah, I think in asking that, it's maybe a little bit of an unfair question. But if it hadn't been that year, I would have rather seen him win for that and or It's a Wonderful Life. I agree. You know, it's we see this all the time. Now, we talked about mm-hmm. it a little bit on the best popular Oscar with my winner for 06, The Departed. Directors never win for their best movies. They win for The Departed. They don't win for Age of Innocence. <laughs> <laughs> and to have three, thinking of the question, I think it makes sense for Capra. Also, he ruled the 30s, and all of his best director wins came in the 30s. So I understand that. I would have preferred them for other movies as well, but... I don't have any problems with the wins, especially looking at the competition. I think there isn't one that stands out to me as being like a really big mistake. This is another hard question. I think in 46, when he lost director to Weiler, how would you have ranked Weiler, David Lean for Brief Encounter and Frank Capra for It's a Wonderful Life? Oh, okay. That is really hard, but I would do Weiler one, Lean two, Capra three. That's kind of what I thought. Yeah. So yeah, another rough year. It doesn't help that Brief Encounter and The Best Years of Our Lives are two of my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And It's a Wonderful Life is two in a way, but it's more of a sentimental pick than like a, I think this is an incredible feat of filmmaking pick, if that makes sense. So next week on Oscar Wilde, we'll be doing another mailbag episode where we'll be taking questions about this award season, just general questions about any films we've discussed on the pod or any other big Oscar winners in the past. I'm excited to have another mailbag, especially as we head into fall festival season. Please send us your questions. They can be about anything that we've talked about on the pod that you would like us to talk about. Feel free to send those to us at oscarwildpod at gmail.com or on Twitter or Instagram. I enjoyed our chat on Frank Capra. I promise I'll try to give his other movies a chance when I watch them. I think you made me appreciate them a little bit more, which is good and kind of how these always go too. (laughs) Yeah, I had a lot of fun talking about Frank Capra today in these movies, and I'm excited to one day talk about John Ford, who had four wins for Best Director, which I think will be a big undertaking for us, but I'm very excited to eventually talk about those movies with you too. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks everyone. See you next time. (laughs) 